text we are going to be reading, are we preaching from, is Mark 9. So if you turn there, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, and it's Mark 9, 1 through 9. And he said to them, Jesus, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power or in power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a cloud uh, came with a voice saying, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore but only Jesus. As the great parabolic philosopher of our day famously stated in Lego Batman, riddle me this, what just happened? When I first read this passage, that's exactly the question that came to mind. Like, what just happened? This passage made absolutely no sense to me. Um, it may make sense to you, but for me, when I first read it, it, it didn't. And if you're like me, you're just wondering, like, what literally just happened? We can have so many questions to pose at this peculiar story to help us not-so-peculiar folk to comprehend it. This story makes no sense, but we make a whole lot of sense, right? Allow me to entertain us with some of my questions. And some of you may have the same questions, some of you may have your own questions. But for now, let me ask these. For instance, what does it mean when Jesus says, there are those who are standing here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God has come in power? Another question is, why did Jesus only take Peter, James, and John with him up the mountain? Where did the other disciples go? What does transfiguration mean? How did Jesus become so dazzling white? Did he sparkle? How in the world are Elijah and Moses standing there? Then, and also this voice comes out declaring Jesus to be the beloved son. What? Where? When? Why? How? I'm not the only person in Christianity who has posed these questions. There are many who, of us who ask questions, or there are many people who ask questions to us as Christians, or even to the Bible, or even to our faith. And there are many who ask questions who are Christians. Questions have always been part and parcel to the Christian faith, even to the time of Israel. Rabbis and Jews were always asking questions. And I wonder whether the, the peculiarity of the word, of our story, reflects how peculiar we actually are. Because I'm, so, I'm also afraid that sometimes we may think we are the norm, that we are somehow the normal ones, the standard, when we actually 
I think we can be beautifully strange. Are there people who reflect this peculiarness, this beauty in Christianity? And I'm sure we can look around to our persons on our left and right and point to them and like, there's something strange about you. But allow me to point to someone who can help us understand this transfiguration story and someone who actually has grown pretty close to my heart. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He lived in 1906 through 1945. He was a Lutheran German minister and theologian, and he is renowned for his theological work. Some of us might even have read some of his stuff. But he's really good at making Christians feel unbearably uncomfortable. Here's a little taste of him through a quote. Quote, there are only two ways possible of encountering Jesus. Two ways. One, man, human, must die. Or two, he must put Jesus to death. Let me read that again. There are only two ways of encountering Jesus. Man must die or he must put Jesus to death. In other words, somebody needs to die. There you go. There's unbearably comfortable, uncomfortable. Bonhoeffer lived, and he also died, a pastoral and theological life. If you don't know him, he lived in Germany during the Nazi regime, and he was deeply critical about the political idolatry of German Christianity. German Christianity and the Nazi government were like seen as one in a lot of ways. And he was deeply critical about that and opposed that. And he was later executed by the Nazis for her resistance and his alleged involvement to, with an attempted assassination of Adolf Hitler. He was found out through the Gestapo's discovery of some missing government funds. And you know when the government is missing funds, that's not a good thing. But they were taken, supposedly, to help Jews across the Swiss border. But there's this book alongside his history that we read in a class called Christ the Center, and was published actually after he died. But one of his best friends, Eberhard Bethke, I don't even know how you say that, um, but the, he compiled a list of his students' notes and made a book called Christ the Center after his death. And uh, as the book says, Christ the Center is a book about Jesus. In the book, Bonhoeffer argues that modern human logic, modern human scientific logic, asks two basic questions about reality and truth. They ask, what is the cause and what is the meaning? And then these two fundamental questions lead into another fundamental question, how? How does this work? How is this possible? How can you say that? And you can see this in science. These are the kind of questions that like frame the scientific inquiry, the scientific quest for knowledge. What? How? But this kind of question became to seep into Christianity. And during his time, a lot of the theology there was asking these sorts of questions. And theology, and Christian theology particularly, were so enthralled with history. Did it actually happen? What happened? How did it happen? And Bonhoeffer was deeply critical about this. And so he begins to tear apart this kind of logic. And he asks a simple question. Quote, what happens when we encounter a being that transcends our understanding, who stands beyond our grasp, who appears to us as a person who doesn't have authority, but is authority, who doesn't 
have a word, but is a word? The only real question that you can ask of such a being is, who are you? Speak for yourself. You see, Jesus asked that kind of question to Peter right before our passage in Mark 9. The same person who made that fearful statement about Elijah building a tent with Elijah, Moses, and Jesus. And Jesus asked his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, he answered correctly, you are the Messiah, the Christ. And this is the first statement in the entire gospel of Mark that anyone has explicitly, explicitly declared Jesus to be the Messiah. And then Jesus orders them to not tell anybody, be quiet, be silent. And then Jesus begins to describe what kind of Messiah he is. He says, quote, the Son of Man, the Messiah, must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the leaders of the day and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And then Peter rebuked him. Just after responding to Jesus of uh, his question, who do you say that I am? Peter rebukes him for saying such things. And Jesus replies to him, get behind me, Satan. It's after these passages that we find ourselves in Mark 9. That Jesus is transformed, or in the Greek, the word for transfiguration is the same word where we, where we get metamorphosis. So he like metamorphosizes, he changes. Something that was there before, is not, something that was not there before is now seen. The unseen has now become seen. And Carson, I think we have some uh, pictures that I uploaded up there. If you can... so. The thing about the transfiguration uh, passage is that not only is it something that needs to be read, I think it's also something that needs to be, like, seen. And so here are some, like, paintings or icons that kind of glimpse the transfiguration. Here's one. You see the three figures, Jesus kind of in the center, brilliant brilliant light. There's another one uh, where there's something magnificent here, and this painting kind of, like, shows Jesus ascending a little bit off the mountain. But you see still the two figures to his right and left and the three disciples right beneath him. There's another one where focus is on the Christ. And then the last one is a traditional icon that we find in church history. But something brilliant, in all these pictures try to capture this, something extraordinary happens at this passage, at this moment in the story of Jesus. The picture and story demands that we ask the question, who in the world is this? Who are you, Jesus? Speak for yourself. The question, who, rather than what, why, when, how, and did. Who is central and primary? All those other questions bow down at the response of the who. The transfiguration of Jesus Christ encounters us, addresses us, and calls us. Something, some being that transcends our understanding. We cannot comprehend it. We cannot understand. And this being says, who do you say that I am? And we see that the Father responds to Jesus' question. The Father responds to Jesus' who do you say that I am? The Father says, this is my son. 
the beloved. Listen to him. Who is this? From Mark 9, 1, we see that he declares that the kingdom of God has come in power and that this kingdom leads disciples up a high mountain. This Jesus is the one whose clothes become dazzling white so that no one on earth could bleach them. He shines. And we remember the psalm that was read today, Psalm 50 that Megan read. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, who is it that shines forth? God. Who is this? This is the one who scandalously was talking with Elijah and Moses, the two greatest prophets in the whole history of Israel. They represent the way of life for the Jews, the law, and the prophets. And then we remember 2 Kings, what Jake read. Elijah struck the water, and the water parted to one side and to the other, and then he ascended into heaven. That passage, obviously, Remember, helps us remember that Moses is the one who parts the seas from the left and to the right. Elijah and Moses are two unique figures in the Old Testament because they lived and died in very peculiar ways. They were also the ones who had just, you know, a casual conversation, you know, with someone on a high mountain somewhere else. I just can't remember right now. Um, But they also had some face-to-face dialogue with, oh, what's the person's name? Oh, yes, Yahweh. They had conversation with Israel's God, Yahweh. And Mark has the audacity, the confidence, and the authority to insert such a seemingly simple phrase and yet completely just blows our mind. And they, Elijah and Moses, on a high mountain, were talking with Jesus. Who in the world is this? This is the one who cannot be put on the same level as Moses and Elijah. Just like Peter tried to put them all on the same level. Let's build a tent for you and you and you. Rather, right after Peter says that, the father says, listen, not to Moses, not to Elijah, but to Jesus. But Moses and Elijah, almost you could hear the echo, they say amen. That we're not called to just merely see Jesus, but we're called to listen. Who are you, Jesus? Speak for yourself. Jesus is the one who will also be killed. Truly, if you're with me right now, then this is a monumental and historic moment in in Jewish faith and even Christian faith. That God self-decloses, reveals to us, that Jesus is the Son of the Father who is filled with the Holy Spirit. The disciples, for the first time, get a first glimpse into the glory of the Holy Trinity. The triune God is present in this passage. And this is the first time that three frightened, unaware, doubtful disciples get a chance to witness. Though the disciples do not yet understand what they are seeing, the church saw something glorious in this text. This and other passages were used to eventually get to the doctrine of the Trinity in A.D. 325 at the Council of Nicaea. You read this and you see all the narrative clues that point Jesus is speaking with Elijah and Moses. Only in the Old Testament do those people talk to God. You cannot wonder but ask, who is this? But not only do we see the glory of God in this, we also see the future of Jesus. 
See, from this mountain, we also see across the valley to another mountain, Golgotha. As Christians, we worship a Lord whose clothes become indeed dazzling white, brilliant, majestic, and glorious, and that no one on earth could possibly make it that way. But we also worship a Lord whose clary clothes will be stripped away from him, and then he be clothed with a purple robe and crowned with a crown of thorns. The one whose clothes are dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them, will be the one whose clothes will be stained with blood. The one who is destined to be disfigured by ridiculing Romans and Jews is the one who has been transfigured in front of frightened disciples. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. God self-decloses who God is in a simple and yet complex human being in front of simple-minded disciples, perhaps such as ourselves. As modern-day Christians, we can be so preoccupied and focused by the wrong kinds of questions. What? How? When? Where? Even why? How do I become holy? What do I need to do? How is everything going to work out? And these questions may be good. Now, I'm not saying we need to disregard that. But I think the centrality of the who gets completely eclipsed by all these questions. And what I'm about to say may be far easier to say than to live out, but know that I'm also preaching to myself here. We need to allow our questions to be remembered, reordered, re-narrated, and reoriented to the who question. Who are we following? Who is our holiness? Who are we called to be like? Who is Jesus? It is then that only the other questions in our lives grow significantly dimmer at the glory of the who question. God has come in power at at the mountain of transfiguration, but this power is one that will come down from the mountain and head towards another mountain. In the season of Epiphany, we come to the culmination. This is the last Sunday of Epiphany. And there's no wonder that is the culmination, that transfiguration ends it, because this is where the glory of God is revealed, we sh- where we shout Eureka, an Epiphany moment. As we come to the end of our season of Epiphany, know that we are coming down the mountain into the Valley of Lent and all the way to the mountain of Golgotha to Good Friday and also behind Good Friday, Easter Sunday. We are coming down where Jesus reveals to us who he really is, the Father, the Son, and filled with the Spirit. We're going to obey the Father and listen to the Son. And right before this, Jesus says, if you want to become my followers, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. On Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, we will get a cross marked on our foreheads. It will signify this very commandment that Jesus is calling us to. We remember also that the way we become good, the way we become a holy people, is not simply one that remembers the Transfiguration Mountain and wants to remain there. If you want to remain there, if we want to just stay in the mountain and have a good experience, then we forget that right after this, Jesus walks down. 
But if we want to be all about the suffering, the torment, and the despair, if we want to do the hard life of Christianity without remembering the Transfiguration Sunday, without the glory and power of Jesus' person, we have no hope. So we have the cross before us, Transfiguration Sunday behind us, and we need both to continue the journey. You see, Bonhoeffer understood this. He lived the cross and resurrection life up the way to his eventual death. On August 8th, 1945, it was a Sunday. He was in prison, and he was conducting a worship service there for the prisoners. And then he finished his last prayer after his sermon when the door opened and then two civilians came in and said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. And then everybody knew what that meant. The gallows. The prisoner said goodbye to him. And then one, and Bonhoeffer turned to all the prisoners and said, this is one of his last words, this is the end for me. But it is also the beginning of life. The next day, August 9th, 1945, he was hanged in Flossenburg. And the last sermon he gave was on the Isaiah text. With his stripes, we are healed. So Bonhoeffer wanted, he did some great work. He did not want us to focus just on him. The sermon isn't about him. And I think he would agree with the text that we read from Paul, that Drew so eloquently read for us. And I can't think of a better way to end than what Paul says. For we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Amen.